The title of my message this morning isn't idiomatic or particularly creative, but it does communicate what I hope to communicate. Uh, the title is Giving for the Gospel. The title that uh, Giving for the Gospel communicates uh, the main point of today's message, the main application of today's text that we will be studying. That is that we would be a people who are giving for the work of the gospel in and through the local church for Christ's sake in our city and beyond. Giving is something that is basic to the Christian life. It's like prayer. It's like faith. It's like repentance. It's like reading scripture. It's just, it's a basic. It's a one-on-one to the Christian life. It is, it is vital to our spiritual health as believers to cultivate a giving spirit. In the Christian life, I... I've never anecdotally seen a person become poor by giving. The opposite is actually the truth. That is, we become enriched by our giving. I believe that it is basic to the Christian life, not just because it's basic to the Christian life, but giving is also basic to our triune God, who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit. He, this triune God, is a giving God, and as we uh, see it so loudly and lovingly in the gospel that we celebrate every Sunday, as we proclaim and we treasure the, the Father's sending of the Son for us, the pouring out of the Spirit of God that makes us more like He is, that is, a giving people who are living in faith and, and repentance and, and, and becoming conformed to the image of the Son who is the ultimate giver that humanity has ever seen. You know, it has been said that we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. And with the topic of giving in mind, would you please open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. This is an ancient letter that was written by the historic Apostle Paul that has much to say about giving. Sadly, the message of giving is missed uh, because many who minister the Word pull verses out of context to make points that the text isn't saying. So, this morning, I need to begin by giving us some historical background that will help us to understand an often understood uh, section of Scripture. So put on your thinking caps this morning, and before we start reading the text of Philippians, let me give you some background. We'll start with the first point on your outline, the Apostle Paul. I want to say something about what an apostle is in just a moment, but first let me say something about the historical figure Paul. Though God had chosen before his birth to save Paul, as he has all those who are in Christ, uh, though God had made this choice to save Paul and, and to make him further an apostle, the, Paul wasn't born an apostle. This was something that happened later in life. In fact, Paul wasn't even born as Paul per se. The name Paul comes through Latin and Greek languages of the Roman Empire that Paul was born into. His Jewish parents, however, gave him the Hebrew name Shaul, which in English we translate as Saul, and the Romans translated as Paulos, or as we say, Paul. He was a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin and from Tarsus. Tarsus is in south-central Turkey. You didn't know Paul was from south-central. He was quite the, quite the gangster. Uh, so, so he and his friends growing up, they, they would have referred to him as Shaul Ha-Tarsi, Ben Benjamin. Uh, that's who he was. In fact, when Paul first met Jesus, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 9, verse 4, Jesus personally called him Shaul, Shaul. He said his name twice. Um, I'll say again more, more about him becoming an apostle and this encounter with Jesus, but I want to emphasize the, the Jewish context of Shaul HaTarsi ben Benyamin. Uh, further, after Jesus encounters him and calls him Shaul, Shaul, uh, Jesus appears in a vision to Ananias in Acts chapter 9, 11, and tells him to go, and I quote, to a man from Tarsus named Shaul. Shaul ha-Tarsi. Now, I emphasize the name and the roots of Saul or Paul because it helps you to understand who he was as a historical figure. Paul was in love with his Jewish culture. In fact, he was, we could say, a nationalist for his country, the nation of Israel. I emphasize this because many moderns mistakenly think that being Jewish or being a Christian, that these are different things. For the early church, that would have been absurd if someone said, well, I'm not a Christian, I'm Jewish. They understood those things as weaving together. For starters, Jesus was Jewish. The church's Bible was the Hebrew Bible. And arguably, all of the books in the New, in the New Testament were written by Jews. 
save for maybe Luke, but I'm not personally persuaded that he was a Gentile. There's good reason to believe he was Jewish. So their texts, their sacred texts were Jewish. Their Lord was Jewish. The church was born in Jerusalem. The first council of the church was held in Jerusalem. The church began as a Jewish movement. In time, it spread from Jerusalem into the Roman Empire, reaching non-Jewish people and making disciples of them. Uh, we read in history of Africans and Asians and Persians and Greeks and Syrians, Macedonians and more coming to faith in the Jewish Messiah. In fact, Paul himself played a key role in this multi-ethnic growth, being nicknamed as the Apostle to the Gentiles. Gentiles, of course, is an ethnic term for non-Jews or outsiders. Uh, arguably, it even has a bit of a pejorative sting to it, to call someone a Gentile. You're outside of covenant, you're far from God. He is the apostle to those who are far from God. God sends him to go to them. Now, speaking of the Jews and Paul's heart for the Jewish culture, the nation, the people, this helps us to appreciate how God had forever changed Shaul HaTarsi's life. You see, Gentiles weren't just outsiders, they were enemies of the Jewish people. And so Paul being saved by the Jewish Messiah, Paul, Paul being prior to being saved, a Jewish community leader and a nationalist who was known for using physical force and government connections to terrorize Jesus' followers, this helps you to appreciate how radical of a life change uh, this was. When, when Christ saved Paul, he took a guy who hated Gentiles and made him a lover of Gentiles. Again, this speaks to the power of God in salvation to change the human heart. Uh, understandably, in that social context, this was, this was wild. Israel was an occupied state. Rome controlled, the Gentiles controlled their state. The Jewish king was a puppet king of the Roman Empire. Uh, Herod was an Edomite. He wasn't even Jewish. The Edomites were enemies of the Jewish people. The government, the Roman government, was on their backs, mocked them, terrorized them. Roman police were everywhere. Military presence was everywhere. It was always in your face that you were an occupied people, that the outsiders controlled all of your stuff. They taxed the heck out of you. You would constantly live in fear of the powers of the Gentiles over your people. They had to keep the Roman Empire happy to survive. Hailing Jesus as the true king who defeated death and was coming to bring God's kingdom would risk Rome throwing the Jewish people out of their homeland. In fact, this concern proved true in 70 AD. And it wasn't due to the Jesus movement. It was just that Rome was a bunch of anti-Semites. And Rome came and sacked the Jewish temple, exiled the Jewish people from the land. And to this day, the land is contested and tense. And also now to this day, there is this mistaking historical fiction that Jesus and his apostles were not pro-Jewish. More specifically, that they believed the gospel was, was for them and and all of this was disclosed in the Hebrew Bible, that, that this gospel of this Jewish Messiah and this movement, this is prophesied in our Jewish scriptures. Of course, today, Judaism is far different than the faith of the early church, the faith of the Jewish Messiah and his disciples. It is today the faith of the rabbis and oral tradition that comes hundreds of years after the Jewish church born in Jerusalem. Now, speaking of Jerusalem or Israel and faith and the Apostle Paul, Paul wrote something very sobering. Romans chapter 9, verse 6. Let me quote this to you. It's a sobering line. Um, Paul said, for, all, for they are not all Israel who are Israel. Romans 9, 6, for they are not all Israel who are Israel. Here Paul makes the point that God's choosing of Israel, yes, made them elect, but it did not make them saved. We tend to take uh, the doctrine of election and we think uh, of soteriology today. We think of, oh, God choosing us, like it says in Ephesians, before the foundations of the world that we would be saved. But God's election of Abraham and his descendants wasn't soteriological per se. It was to make them into a nation. That was the Abrahamic covenant that we read about in Genesis, that God would take the, the progeny of Abraham, bring them to the place of the land of promise, and through them he would bless the nations. But it did not mean that everyone in the nation was actually saved and right with God. In fact, when you read the historical narratives of the Hebrew Bible, you see this loud and clear. 
Come on Wednesday nights. We're, we're studying these texts. It's very clear when you read the Hebrew Bible that not all of Israel were of Israel in the sense that not all who were in this covenant were actually saved. And so Jesus said in Matthew twenty two fourteen, many are called, but few are chosen. Jesus said in Matthew seven fourteen, narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Paul was one who found it, or rather he was one Jesus found, as referenced in Acts chapter 9 just a moment ago. So Paul was, you see on your outline, some context here, he was a saved sinner. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, the Apostle Paul summed up the gospel of God's grace and his assessment of his life apart from Christ saving him. Draw your eyes up here, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am, Saul, Paul says, the chief. I'm the chief of sinners. Paul understood that before his encounter with Christ, before Christ gave, grabbed a hold of him, that he was a sinner in need of a Savior. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, I'll put this in front of you, chapter 15, I am the least of the apostles. I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But not the grace of God, but by the grace of God, rather, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than them all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. It's important to have these verses in front of you as we're stepping into this great text of Philippians and we're thinking about this historical figure, Paul. Because often there is a tendency, one, to remove him from his Jewish context. And also, secondly, we hear the word apostle and we think, well, that's unattainable. That's someone who's really, really spiritual or whatever. And, uh, you know, he's sort of a super Christian, if you will. So reading him, I'll never attain to these things. But Paul says, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm a sinner. I am a sinner. Um, I, I'm, I'm not a, a superhero. I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm one who is in need of the Savior. I'm the chief of sinners. To, to ground for those who are, are reading him, to ground for those who listen to his preaching and teaching, the credit of salvation belongs to God. Salvation is God's work. The story of the scriptures, the story of reality, is one that begins with a creator. And the creator creating. And there's a creation. And, and God makes humanity in that creation and blesses humanity in his own image. And, and it's a story of unrequited love because humanity rebels against him, rejects his love, rejects his will. He is the giver of life. Uh, rebellion against him means that the, the, the consequence... The, the, the consequence that fits that crime, rebelling against the giver of life, is the taking back of life. God in his grace uh, spares them immediate death, but humanity falls into disarray, and ultimately we all die because we all rebel. Ten out of ten people die. You know why? Because ten out of ten people sin. We've rebelled against our creator, and so life is being taken from us. The whole creation is, is undergoing a slow state of death. But because God is love, because God is gracious, God saw fit to redeem a people for himself. Those who didn't deserve it, those who didn't want it, he comes and he gives them new life by his spirit so that they come in repentance and faith. That work is his work, and so he gets all the credit. A believer can never say, oh, look at me, I'm so spiritual. Those lost people over there, watching the evening news, as so many do. Oh, look at what the lost people are doing again. And, and beating our chests, as the Pharisee did, in that great passage in the Gospel of Luke of the Pharisee and the publican, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like those sinners over there. No, 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 no. We are all sinners. We all deserve death. We all deserve rejection. That, that's what we have coming to us. But the good news of the Gospel is that God himself has come to rescue us. The historical Jesus of Nazareth is none other than God the Son, that eternal triune God whose Father, Son, and Spirit, the Father sends the Son. The Son comes, and He doesn't remain as, as just God. He actually takes humanity on Himself. So as a human, He lives the life that we did not live. He never rejects the love of the Father, never rebels against the Father. There's not a drop of rebellion in His heart. He's pure. And as a man, he can then go and, and, and take the penalty that we deserve, death, upon himself and give himself as a sacrifice, give himself as a substitute. 
We all know what a substitute is. It's someone who stands in the place of another. Uh, I, I was educated in the Inglewood Unified and LA Unified schools. We always loved it when there was news of a substitute because it meant we could act crazy that day. And the substitute takes the beating. Uh, so too, with regard to the cross, the substitute goes and takes the beating in the place of another. Uh, and, and just like my substitute illustration, then the real teacher comes back and we all have it coming because there's a list with all our names and the things that we have done. And so too, the substitute who, hang, who hung on the cross, he is coming again and we will face his just punishment. But the good news is that there is time. You can come to him right now. You can be saved from what you deserve. You can have your heart changed, your life changed. This is what Paul preached. Paul says, this is the faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance, that Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the chiefest. I don't deserve to be saved. I don't deserve to be an apostle. Look up here at Ephesians. He wrote, although I am the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. Again, these were his enemies. And now he praises that God has used him, who was formerly an enemy of God himself, now to become an ambassador of reconciliation. So read Paul in context. He's a Jewish man. He loves his Jewish people. He loves the soil of the Holy Land. He knows of the covenants of God. He, 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 he knows that he doesn't deserve to be there. He's not a supernatural believer. Uh, he's not a special superhero believer. He's just a sinner who was saved by a supernatural God. This brings us to the next point, that Paul was saved to be sent. So here we see that he was a saved sinner. Next we see he's a sent spokesman. I said I would say something about being an apostle later, and here's the time to talk about it. The word apostle is a word that simply means one who was sent. In a technical sense, the word apostle is reserved for those who had seen the risen Lord and were commissioned by him to go spread the gospel and found churches that would continue the work of the gospel beyond the time of the apostles, the sent ones. God sent Paul when Paul was encountered by the risen Jesus, which I referenced earlier in Acts chapter 9. Jesus told him that he had, look at this, that he was, gonna, he was his chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel. It is worth noting that this carrying of the news of this creator God that we've rebelled against, this carrying of that message to the ends of the earth, to the nations or to the Gentiles, this was not a new thing that came with Jesus and the apostles. Uh, this was there from the get-go in the book of Genesis. When God chose Abram and Isaac and Jacob, sinners just like Paul and the rest of us, God emphasized to the patriarchs, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, that all the nations would be blessed through them. Genesis 12.3, Genesis 18.18, Genesis 26.4, Genesis 28.14. The prophecies of the Hebrew Bible, the first Bible of the church, uh, describe in those prophecies an international blessing that would come through Israel's Messiah, who would become not just Israel's Messiah, but the Savior of the nations. Mind you, that this Savior, as I already said, is not a third party. God didn't send a third party to remedy sin. God came himself in the Son. The Son who became flesh as a human made the payment for us and as God extended the prerogative of forgiveness. This is the good news. If you didn't respond to it earlier, you can respond to it now and I'll keep bringing it up as long as I can carry myself up here. This is good news. Come to him. Paul's role as an apostle was to call people to come to him. Paul's role as an apostle was continuing the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant to all peoples, in spite of the fact that Israel had largely rejected the Messiah. But as you see over and over again when you read the Bible, when God's people are faithless, he remains faithful. Amen? When we are faithless, he remains faithful. He'll still bless the nations. Look up here, Acts chapter 26, verse 18 to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's, that was why Paul was sent, an apostle, a sent one. Paul was sent by Christ to go into the darkness and make disciples. Uh, by the point of this writing, the, the letter to the Philippians, which is in front of you, Paul had been on the move preaching the gospel and planting churches. 
And so in his letters, we see him then cycling back and checking in on the saints to make sure that they are resourced and standing, which leads me to the next point. So we've considered who Paul was and to give us context for reading this text. He was a saved sinner, a sent spokesman, and this letter of the Philippians has a specific focus of supplying the saints. This is a letter that is written to the church in an ancient city known as Philippi, hence it is called the Philippians. It was a major, major city like Los Angeles in Rome, and missionally we know from the book of Acts in the early church that Christians targeted major cities to establish churches in dense urban centers who then could go out and extend to the remotest parts of the earth. In the opening of this letter, we're going to see Paul's passion for the saints to continue the theme of today's message, giving for the gospel. The Philippians were a very generous church, which we'll see in our study today, so they provide an example, a positive example that we can learn from. Okay, let's read the text. Let's, let's start with the beginning, Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for all of you, in view of your participation in the gospel and from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel you're partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things which are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Now the theme of giving might not be readily evident at first glance. And so if you will, please allow me to take you into the text. We're going to camp here and I'm going to give you some more background to help you to understand it. It is so important to have background when you're reading the Bible because you're thousands of years removed. There's different contexts. There's things that are going on there that the original readers would have readily understood. And when I send an email to someone or communicate with someone, we have shared understandings about words and historical happenings and interpretations of those happenings, and I don't have to spell it all out. So if you were reading my email to someone, you might go, I don't know what he's saying there without having the background. Uh, this is why it's important for churches to have uh, Bible teachers who can give you that background and teach you how to read the text. And that's what I want to do this morning. What is evident in this text is that Paul is thankful for the Philippians, and I'll show you that he's thankful specifically for their giving uh, in a moment, but I don't want to just tell you that, I want you to see that. So he thanks them. You saw that in the text. Crowd responds, yes, I'm feeling lonely up here, yes, you see that he's thankful, you see that much, okay? Why is he thankful? I have two questions. Look at the text and answer them. Uh, two questions, first, why is he thankful? Look at the text. Look at verse 5. What does he say in verse 5 he's thankful for? Their participation in the gospel. Okay? I said I have two questions. The first is why. Verse 5 says he's thankful because of their participation in the gospel. Second question, how did they participate in the gospel? Look at the text. How, what does it say? How were they participating? Let me give you a hint. Keep looking at the text. He, he says something about the first day until now. Okay, so, so, so to the second question, how do they participate? It has something to do with the first day until now. So when Paul first encountered them, to now as he's writing to them, okay? So to answer the question, then we need a little more background about when's the first day and when is now and what was going on in between. So we have some background of Paul in the early church, and now let's get into some background for the church in Philippi. So we've looked at the Apostle Paul, and now let's look at addressing the Philippians. Paul, when he wrote this letter, was in prison. Uh, again, he was from South Central. He's, he's about that gang life. Uh, no, no. He was in prison for the faith. He wasn't doing, doing uh, dirt on the streets. And this letter was penned somewhere in Rome between 59 to 61, 62 AD. Most likely, it was penned towards the end of his incarceration. Therefore, a date around 61 or 62 is most reasonable. 
As the opening verse makes abundantly clear, the letter was, lit, the letter, letter was written to the church in Philippi, which was a church that Paul founded. This was his first church started in Europe. So in terms of the gospel spreading, this was the first European church. Uh, this is significant, by the way, because uh, many uh, in, in uh, contemporary times will attack Christian faith and say, oh, it's the white man's religion, it's the European religion. And you're like, it was in Africa and Asia and the Middle East before it ever hit Europe. Europe's kind of the Johnny-come-lately, so you clearly don't know what you're talking about when you go there. I know you heard it on TikTok, but let me say, it's wrong, okay? So this was the first European church. 49 AD, on Paul's second missionary journey, the apostles set sail for Europe along with his companions, Luke, Timothy, and Silas. It was in response, you can read about this in Acts 16, it was in response to a vision that he had. When in Philippi, Paul got the ministry started and they planted this church. He was tossed in jail along with Silas because of this ministry. You can read about this in Acts 16, verses 16 through 24. Accompanied by Silas, by Timothy, possibly by Luke, the author of Acts uh, and the Gospel of Luke, uh, Paul is believed to have preached for the first time on European soil here with this congregation in Philippi. According to the New Testament, Paul visited the church on other occasions, and so he has an ongoing relationship with them after his first time being there planting the church. Okay, so background. As we've covered, Paul's in prison. He's in jail, circa 59, 61, 62. Uh, while in prison, they were beaten without charge. When the authorities found that Paul was a Roman citizen, they released him and asked him to, to get out of town. Paul left Luke in charge of the work in Philippi, perhaps Timothy with him as an assistant. Paul then goes on to Thessalonica for the space of three Sabbaths. While he was there, the Philippians sent Paul uh, some, some money to help him with the ministry. Okay, so Paul is, is, is receiving love gifts from the Philippians for purposes of planting churches and strengthening churches. Uh, this is where the giving comes from. This is the background you need to understand the opening chapter. Paul's uh, ministry as he is, uh, is on the go. On his second missionary journey, he finds the church. So you have A, jail, B, journeys. Paul's planting. As I already covered, he plants the church around 49, the first European church. Okay, so he writes this letter. Now let's come back to these two questions that I asked you. He's thankful. You all agreed. Why is he thankful? Verse 5, the participation in the gospel. My second question, how did they participate? Okay, let me give you a hint. It has to do with the first day until now. And with this background in mind, hopefully you're connecting the dots, this spanned 10 years. This is the longest gap of Paul's writings from when he first met a people, planted a church, and then when he writes. Let's rehearse the data. Paul planted his church on his second missionary journey. A few years later, in the spring of 52, he began his third missionary journey. Let me show you a map to orient you to the missionary journeys. Though you probably all have one in the back of your uh, Bibles, if you've got a decent Bible, there's typically maps of Paul's journeys. So Paul is writing to see that the saints are supplied, that folks are giving. Paul was facing great opposition and slander, but he wasn't writing to clear his name or whatever. Oh no, he writes because he's burdened for the church. Almost three years in Ephesus, Paul resumes his fundraising trek to Jerusalem. He comes to Macedonia in the spring of 55. Since the Philippians had given so much, they had given so much money to the ministry, uh, Paul actually insists that they give nothing. You guys have done enough. But they insist, and they continue to send resources for Paul to use for making disciples and growing churches. Paul brings that money later, we read in Acts 21, uh, to help the church in Jerusalem that was struggling, and was later arrested and spent two years in prison, yet again in Caesarea, and during his imprisonment, the Philippians were uncertain as to Paul's fate. They lacked the funds to help him. But we'll see, yet again, they continue to give. Paul appealed to Caesar in the summer of 58 AD. He set sail for Rome for his trial that we read about in Acts 25. News of his appeal would have certainly spread to churches. The Philippians hear about it, and they send money to help Paul. They were a giving people. They dispatched a fellow believer named Epaphroditus to Rome with a gift, which we read about in the letter to the Philippians. We'll see it. Epaphroditus comes with more than money. 
Epaphroditus comes with questions about theology and, and ministry, which this little letter addresses. So it opens with him thanking them for being a giving people. And then in the middle, you read about some questions of theology and ministry that they had. And then it closes with them thanking them again for being a people who are giving people. As well, on a practical note, the church was hoping that Paul would keep Epaphroditus as his assistant and then send Timothy back to them. So you see, both the church and Paul were giving people and making sure everyone was okay. They didn't have email, they didn't have Twitter, they didn't have... This is the ancient way of doing things. You're sending letters and sending messengers. And we can reconstruct those letters and messengers off the historical data. Paul was unable to send Timothy. Would you turn from chapter 1 to chapter 2 of Philippians? Let me show you this. Paul was unable to send Timothy until he uh, found out more about his circumstances and he instead intended to send Epaphroditus back. So look at chapter 2, verse 19. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. Okay, skip down to verse 25. Can't send you Timothy, but verse 25, I'll, I'll send you the B team, but I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus. My brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. He's not B-team. He's quality. He's a soldier. He's a hard worker. Paul is concerned that they're cared for, so he wants to send someone who's hardworking, who will network the churches and make sure the churches are spiritually cared for in terms of their theological questions, their ministry questions, but also in terms of the basic Christian life that they were giving churches that were giving for the spread of the gospel through their local churches. So you see Paul's heart in this text. Look back at Philippians chapter 2. Draw your eyes at, at verse 26 where we left off. Uh, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him. And not only him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly to you, so that when you see him, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him in the Lord and with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard. So here we see, again, Paul's writing this letter for practical reasons. I'm going to send Epaphroditus. I've got to keep Timothy, make sure you guys are okay. You guys, uh, shout out props. You've been such a giving church, and your work in giving has been so tremendous. I'm filled with, with so much joy. This is the next sub-point on your outline. We've seen Paul in jail, his journeys, and now we see Paul's joy. Philippians wasn't written uh, like Corinthians or something because there was a crisis or an emergency. You read First and Second Corinthians, you're like, holy cow, they were, this is like Maury Povich or Jerry Springer or, you know, I mean, this, this is, they were wiling out, there's crazy things. He's sending them letters. He's, he's referring to letters that we don't even have. They, they got so many problems. Paul didn't write to the church in Philippi because of problems or emergencies. He wrote to thank them for being a giving people for the gospel. Philippians is multifaceted. As you see on your outline under Paul's joy, it was written as a thank you note. So he writes to thank them. Philippians chapter 1 is thanking them for their giving from when he first planted the church all the way up to when he's writing this letter in prison, they kept sending uh, financial gifts to care for the gospel. There's a saying, always give without remembering and always receive without forgetting. Let me say it again. Always give without remembering and always receive without forgetting. Paul remembers their giving. He's thankful. And Paul gives without remembering in that he doesn't receive charity as anything other than charity. A gift is a gift. Jesus spoke of giving in such a way. He says, give so that your right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. Likewise, Jesus cautioned against those who give to be seen. Those who engage in spiritual acts so to be seen, so to get likes, so to get followers, so as to use it for something else, so as to place yourself over someone who then owes you back. You see... I bought lunch, so next time you buy lunch, right? I gave, and so now you give. No, always give without remembering, and always receive without forgiving. And so Paul writes to say thank you. I remember what you have done. Secondly, he, he writes to address those various questions, um, these various questions about theology and ministry. 
which I won't get into in today's message because I want to focus on this theme of his thanks for their giving. And thirdly, as I showed you, he writes as a diplomatic reintroduction of Epaphroditus. Um, you know, I'm sending Epaphroditus. They wanted him to send Timothy, so he explains to them why that wasn't the case and explains to them that Epaphroditus is hardworking. Apparently, Epaphroditus almost even died, so he's gone through some physical ailment. And so, so he's, he's writing this letter for these reasons. Now then, let's get back to this opening reason of giving in the first chapter. Number three on the outline, advancing participation. Apostle Paul addressing Philippians and now advancing participation. I asked you the question, why was he thankful, right? He was thankful for their participation we saw. The work of this participation deals with expanding parishes or churches. Paul couldn't do this with, without it. it. It requires a lot of work and resources to be able to be focused full-time on expanding the message of the gospel. So Paul is running around, he's planting churches in these different places, and he's making sure that the saints are covered. Uh, not, the giving isn't just for, you know, continuing the preaching and the making of disciples. The giving is also for the needs of the church. We saw in our public reading of Scripture at the beginning of service today in the book of Acts how the church was giving to make sure that everyone's needs were cared for. That's a part of the faith. As basic as prayer is, reading Scripture, repentance and faith, so it is to be a giving people. Now, uh, under this, expanding parishes, you have B, epilogue and prologue. A prologue is the beginning of a letter. An epilogue is the closing of a letter. These are letters that we're reading. Philippians is a letter. 1 Corinthians is a letter. Ephesians is a letter. And so often when you're reading the opening of the letter, if you want help understanding it, it's helpful to go to the end. Uh, even in our American way of writing essays, you, you write an essay by having an introduction, body, and conclusion. In the introduction, you say what you're going to say. In the, in the body, you say it. And then in the conclusion, you repeat it. So if you want to save time, often you could just read the intro and the conclusion. You go, oh, I get what this paper is about. So I want to take us from the first chapter of Philippians, and I want to take us to the last chapter of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, to parallel the epilogue and the prologue for you. I, I shared earlier that this passage that we're in this morning is a highly misunderstood passage. The part that is misunderstood in particular is this verse 6, where Paul says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I have, I have almost never heard this passage rightly handled in like popular preaching uh, that I've heard on this text. Verse 6 is used to say to the individual that God has began something in you, and God is working that thing in you, what we call our doctrine of sanctification. Now, surely that is true. God has, when he saves us, he, he begins to work in us. And he keeps on that work. Praise be to God. That's called sanctification. But that's not what Paul is dealing with here in this passage. He's not saying, I began a little work inside of your heart. And don't you worry, I'm going to keep working on it. Uh, one, in terms of the text itself, he's not using a singular you. He's using a plural you. Uh, as as my, my family from Oklahoma would say, y'all. This is a y'all. He who began a good work in all of y'all. So this is something corporate that, that God was doing in them. And what is it corporately that he's doing in them? He was making them a giving people. And he did that from the very beginning that they heard the gospel. They started that church. God was supernaturally making them into a giving people. Uh, I, I get together with a lot of, of pastors. Um, I'm a, a part of some groups with some young pastors. I'm, I've slowly become the old guy because when they do the, like, how many years have you been pastoring? I'll say 25, and they all go, oh, you know, and it feels weird. But so as the old guy, you get asked questions. And they'll say things like, you know, what do we do with, you know, how do you encourage giving in your church? You, know, you preach the gospel. You preach, preach the word of God. You don't, have to, you don't have to, like, heap sermons on people and make them feel guilty about not giving. Uh, we all know we don't give enough. How, how do you encourage your people to pray? Preach sermons that make them feel bad about not praying enough? This is what we call the difference between law and grace. We don't preach the law. I could stand up here and say, uh, give you statistics about how you're not giving enough or whatever. Oh, I should be more giving. Oh, I feel really bad about myself. But if you preach the gospel, our gospel message is 
uh, about for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And as we hear the gospel rightly preached, then we come in repentance and faith to say, and I'm not giving the way that I should. Uh, you know, and, I, and we pray that God would foster a spirit of giving in our lives. That's, that's what you do. Philippians chapter 1, the good work that he began in them, that's not individual personal sanctification. It was a corporate spirit of giving for the cause of the gospel. Now, if you don't see it, you'll see it when you get to the epilogue. And again, the epilogue parallels the prologue. Draw your eyes at verse 10. We're reading the close to help us understand the beginning. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In every circumstance, I've, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both from having abundance and suffering need. I, I've had the fried bologna sandwiches. I've had the cup of noodles. You know, I've gotten by on, on you know, the coupons and very little. I've also, you know, uh, had, had days where things were going good, you see. I can, verse 13, do all things through him who strengthens me. That's another verse that gets pulled out of context. There was even a Christian basketball player who put it on his basketball shoe. Granted, he shoots miraculously, but I don't think that that's what this verse is about. Paul's not talking about hooping. He's from South Central, but he's not talking about hooping. He's talking about God working through his church to provide for the work of the gospel. Uh, in fact, when I was a kid, they had a traveling... My grandma would always mail me all the stuff that was going on among the youth. Uh, and I put youth because it was never youth-oriented. It was like 40-year-olds trying to be cool. So Carmen was a rapper. There was all, but anyway, there's a traveling uh, like wrestling team with these guys. And they had Philippians 4.13 like on their, on their chests, and they would like break ice blocks or whatever. I can do all things through Christ. You know, it was like Hulk Hogan, the Christian Hulk Hogan or whatever. Step into a slim gym, all things through Christ. And you're like, I don't, I don't, no, that's not what this verse is about. Anyway, nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves know that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of Giving, right? He's talking about giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift myself, but I seek the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance, and I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you've sent. Remember, Epaphroditus came and brought money. And here's how Paul describes the money. A fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Again, that's another verse that gets pulled out of context. I've seen this at like single seminars. You lonely, you haven't found a good Christian. He will supply all your needs. You're like, he's not talking about dating. My goodness. Just let him talk in context. I picture Paul uh, with most preachers today, just in heaven going, oy vey. You know, like, that is not what I was talking about. Whatever's. Now, now, verse 20, to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's very clear from the epilogue that he's talking about their participation in giving, specifically their monetary gifts. You have a breakdown of this on your outline, and I'll put it up here on the PowerPoint in case uh, any of you didn't get it. You see the parallels here. In 1.3, I thank my God. In 4.10, I rejoice in the Lord. Your participation, 1.5. Your sharing, 4.15. Your participation in the gospel from the first day, right? 1.5, 4.14, at the first preaching of the gospel. 1.6, he will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. 4.14, which will profit to your account, alluding to the return of Jesus. So they were participating in the gospel by giving. They were sharing finances and faith. They were sharing treasures and testimony. The word participate in the Greek comes from the word koinonia. Maybe you've heard that before. Koinonia is a term that is commonly translated as fellowship. The word koinonia means fellowship or partnership or sharing. So let me talk about some exegetical points here so you understand this. The basic concept of koinonia isn't so much fellowship. We think about fellowship, 
The church is having a fellowship. We're going to have some pizzas, some jumpy houses, some chicken. Let's fellowship. And you're like, oh, it's like hanging out and being together. Well, koinonia actually dealt more with uh, a better rendering would be participation. Participation in a common cause or goal. In the, in the Bible, it literally carries the meaning of sharing financially and forming formal partnerships uh, through that giving for sake of the spread of the gospel. When Paul speaks of koinonia, he is addressing the Philippians' financial contributions. Paul uses koinonia in 1.5 and 4.15. He uses the verb koinoneo. In 4.14, he uses a compound verb, sin koinoneo. Sin meaning with, like synergy, okay, with, synthesis, identifying the gift that they sent and how it was being used with others for purposes of spread of the gospel. The compound noun, sin koinonai, means fellow sharers. It is used in chapter 1, verse 7, expressing the unity of the Philippians that they had with Paul in his ministry and in his imprisonment. Koinonia is more than just hanging out. It's more than a social gathering. Koinonia is not pie and coffee. Though I love me some pie and coffee. It's more than that. It's joining together in ministry. Fellowship is not the party after the game, and it's certainly not the party instead of the game. It took place during the game. It was the giving of all. Uh, including of what we're told in this life that we need to hold on to and fret about the most, money. I, I did read a recent article just last night in the Christian Post. The median for, and I quote, uh, church giving is 0.57%. Yes, that's just over one and a half of 1%. While for charitable giving among Christians, it's at 0.1% or one-tenth of 1%. Total giving to church and charity combined shows a median figure of exactly 1%. Think about that figure for a moment. Half of all American evangelical Protestants give less than 1% of their household income to church or to charity. Now, if you're new to the Bible, or maybe you're familiar with the Old Testament, but you haven't been taught things in context, you might say, well, 1%, that's horrible. Aren't we supposed to be giving 10%? Aren't we supposed to tithe? Now, there's not time to get into this. You could come to the Old Testament class on Wednesday, shameless plug. But no, we're not under the tithe. We're not the nation of Israel. Uh, we are the church of Jesus Christ, and Christ has freed us from the law of Moses, and the tithe was under the law of Moses. We are not under the tithe. Further, Israel wasn't under a mere 10%. Israel was under several tithes that collectively added up to about 25%. Um, now, depending on what income bracket you are in this country, you might be paying around 25% to Uncle Sam. That said, keep in mind that in the Old Testament, Israel was Uncle Sam. Israel was the government. It was a theocracy. It was a church state. So when you gave to Israel, you were giving uh, to your government. The priests are government employees. They need to be cared for. That's the Levitical tithe. Uh, the charity, the social infrastructure... You give of your produce and what have you to make sure that the poor were cared for. This was a part of their government. The church is not the government of God. The church is the eschatological community of God heralding that God has come in Christ and that he's coming again. We're, we're not under the tithe. I say this to preachers and they go, you tell your people they're not supposed to tithe? Aren't you worried no one's going to give? They go, no, you just tell people about what God has given to them. And by the Spirit, God makes us into a giving people. That's Paul's heart. Look at what Paul wrote here in 2 Corinthians. I'll put it in front of you. Chapter 9. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. The difference here in 2 Corinthians from, say, Leviticus and the tithe of the Old Testament is that we're called not to give as a tithe under compulsion to the government. We're called to give out of joy in worship of God. Um, there's a lot of bad teaching that's out there on the subject of giving, and particularly the health and wealth prosperity uh, gospel business. That is no gospel at all. They tell you, oh, you give, give your money and then God's going to give it back to you. These television preachers are just con artists who are pulling the Bible out of context to manipulate people to give money to their, uh, their, their shenanigans. They'll even say, oh, Jesus wants you wealthy, so if you just give more, then you know, he'll hook it up for you. Uh, what, a, what a petty gospel that God will scratch your back if you scratch his. 
This is not the gospel. This is not what you are hearing preached to you today from the Word of God. Draw your eyes back at Philippians chapter 1 at verse 8, please. Look at the text. God is my witness. Philippians 1.8 How I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. They were filled with love and knowledge and discernment. They were sincere. They were thankful. They cared. They were partners in the gospel. That is the good work of Philippians 1.6. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you by making you charitable people who take your resources and use them for the great work of the gospel, that giving, he's going to use it until the day of Christ Jesus. Think about that. Think about that for a second. That when you give, when you give in the church, God takes that and he uses it beyond even your own lifetime. The work of the Philippians, their giving is actually still going on now. In the ripple effect, they gave to this church, this church was moved by that, it gave to that church, that church was moved by it, that church gave to this church who planted this church, who planted this church, who all the way up to us, who are sending missionaries into the world and trying to partner with people and planting churches, those gifts just keep going and going until Christ comes back. I labored to give you the context this morning to provide you with the exegesis that you would read these verses in context and, and just see and be filled with joy over the great, the great gift that we have in giving and how God works through it. The Knox translation actually captures the nuance of 1-6 the best. Draw your eyes up here and I'll read uh, verses 3 through 6 so you see it. Paul says, I give thanks to my God for all my memories of you. Happy at all times in all prayer I offer for all of you. So full a part that you have taken in the work of Christ's gospel from the day when it was first preached to you till now. Nor am I less confident that he who has inspired this generosity in you will bring it to perfection ready for the day when Christ comes. The good work that God began in them was a giving spirit. And that giving spirit was fostering more gospel generosity as it continued on. Now the last point on your uh, outline here, we've covered a lot of ground, history on the Apostle Paul, the history on the Philippians, talking about what this participation is. Let me close with some applying principles. Let me ask a rhetorical question for you. When we think about coming to church on a Sunday... What is the greatest aspect that you look forward to? What is the greatest aspect that you look forward to in coming on Sunday? You like these really long sermons? You like uh, coming here, landing, rock and roll up here? You know, or you like seeing your friends or whatever? And these are all good things. I, I love I love singing as Landon Lee's. I love seeing seeing my friends. I love hearing the word taught. But if I'm honest with myself. Uh, the subject of giving isn't something that pops in my mind first. Like, what a joy it is. We get to gather and bring our first fruits to God. Uh, and so, as we read from the Philippians, we're, we're challenged in this light. As we read of Paul, we're challenged, though, not to, to give under some sort of grudge or some sort of guilt trip, but to give in response to, A, the Messiah's gracious intervention. We saw Paul. He said, I'm just a sinner. I, I'm not a, I wasn't a giving person. I was a taking person. I wasn't a gospel preacher. I, I stood against the gospel. But Paul's life changed by Christ. And so too as you've had Christ herald, heralded to you today. It is through Christ and by his spirit that we're moved to become a more giving people. So we can cry out in light of the Messiah's gracious intervention that he would do a work in us to make us more giving. I don't know about you, but I want to be more giving. I want to be more holy. I want to be more obedient. I want to be more humble. I want to be more repentant. I want to know his word more. I want to know intimacy with his spirit more. And that's our calling in life to, to fight the fight of faith and press in and say, God, make me more like you. Our motive for giving is just that. We want to become more like him. And our God is a giving God. And our God is a God who, who's worthy of worship. If Christ is our supreme treasure, Wealth is going to lose all of its power. It's a happy thing for us to give because he saved us and he's so giving and this is a part of our worship. 
You know, the word worship comes from an old English word, worth-ship. It is the worth of something, what you give value to. So we, we give financially as an expression of how much he means to us. We give financially as motive for mission. God is working something out in the world. We think of the message in t- of the gospel in terms of a message, but it's more than a message. It's, it's a man. It's Jesus, the God-man who died for us. It's more than a man. It's more than a message. It's a program that God is unraveling. It's something we get to participate in. It's an epic saga that you've been invited into. A huge cosmic drama of the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness and a God who's rescuing people through the preaching of this word, the gospel. What a grand play. Uh, growing up as uh, you know, a kid in Los Angeles, you know everyone in Los Angeles tries to make it in Hollywood or the music industry or whatever. And when I was a teenager... I got an agent. I started doing some, uh, some TV and some movies and stuff. I got some extra gigs. I'll spare, you, I'll spare you the details. One of them was on the Wonder Years, Fred Savage, Danny, myself. But, you know, and we go hang out. We got to ditch school, which was great. And we made pretty good money and hung out with Hollywood people because they had all those classroom scenes, so they needed extras in it. And so you'd be there all day and be sitting behind Fred Savage or whatever. And then during the week, you tune into the show to see if you made it past the edits. And there were so many of us, you're like, oh man, I didn't make it, you know? And you sit there, oh, and you tell your friends, my episode's gonna be on this night. And you, 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 know, you watch it and you're like, I just walked by the hallway. It was like one second, did you see it? You know? And you get so fired up, they're like, I was, I was on, it was just one second, but man, I was on, I was on that thing, you know? It was just one second. I think about the history of the church. The history of the church, and it's this long thing, you know, it's gone on for 2,000 years. We're waiting for Jesus to come. And, and, and one day he's going to come, and we'll look back on it all. You'll see like that one second where like you appeared in the story, you know? And you'll rejoice with the angels in heaven. They're like, oh, man, God like gave me a spirit of giving, not just giving in terms of finances and the rest, but also a spirit of giving in, in using your mouth to share the gospel. And, and to, to look at those blips where God used you and put you in someone's life to, to share the word and made you into a giving person. It would be an incredible thing. My final point is that in all of this, we look at it as an investment. Um, we know what investments are. Um, sometimes things come along that are supposed to be investments and they crash and we're all disappointed. Uh, the gospel is never going to crash. This isn't a Ponzi scheme. The investments that you make in the gospel today, they are going to last forever. He says, you're giving, Philippians. When Christ comes, that work is going to continue on. The Philippians learned what Jim Elliot, the great missionary martyr in Ecuador, said, and this is uh, written on your outline, that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The Philippians were an example of this giving. They exchanged earthly treasures for, for heavenly riches. They knew what it was to make a gospel investment. They knew what it was to give of something just now in the, you know, in the present that is temporary, to invest in something that would pay its dividends forward for, for, for everlasting days. I seek a profit, Philippians 4, 17, Paul says, for the profit which increases to your account. These are our investments. We don't judge each day by the harvest that we reap. We don't judge our church by the bodies and bucks on the budget. Again, we don't judge things based on the harvest that we reap. We judge things based on the seeds we plant. God is the one who waters. God is the one who grows. God is the one who makes us a giving people. Let's come to the communion table and celebrate the great gift that God the Father has made in His Son. In this way, God loved the world. Let's celebrate the one who took on flesh for us, who shed His blood for us, and let us come with our offerings, there's offering boxes up here, others give online or whatever, but let's come with our offerings, let's come to the communion table, let's, let's come with our voices and cry out to Him in song, let's come in, in, in repentance and faith in our, in our hearts and minds as we cry out to Him in prayer, oh, oh God, do a work in us like you did in the Philippians, for sake of your Son in this city. Let me pray and then the table will be open and we'll sing together. Father, thank you for your great love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us. We thank you for this table which commemorates that death 
But Lord, more than looking back on the death, it looks forward to the great reunion and banquet table that awaits when the King of Kings will come and the feast of the Lamb will be served and the nations will be gathered and and the elect from the four corners of the earth will come and you will say, Behold, enter my kingdom, the kingdom that has been prepared for you for the foundations of the world. Your Son will reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Father, we're thankful that, that in His first coming, it wasn't to reign as King, but it was to suffer as a servant. And we are thankful for the gift of His suffering that would take us as sinners and make us into sons through His suffering, through His holiness. Lord Jesus, we come to the table now. We respond in giving and offering and prayer and song. For You alone are worthy of our praise. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.